It is such an honor to be with you today. My name's Matt Carter, lead pastor at Sagemont. We're beginning today a really quick two-week series that we're calling Here and Now. And the idea behind this series is since Jesus is alive, since Jesus rose from the grave, then now what? How does that impact the here and the now for us? I got a call a while back from one of my oldest son's buddies that he grew up with. I actually coached him in football. And so he calls me coach and he called me one day. He said, coach, I have a question for you. He said, I, I, I want to talk to you about Jesus for a minute. And, and my question is this. He said, I've been thinking about it. And if this whole thing is true, then I figure I need to get in or out. What do you think about that? He said, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, if that really happened, he was dead, but now he's alive, he said, then this sort of half in, half out life that I've been living really isn't an option. He goes, what do you think about that? And I told him, I, I said, I think you're dead on. Because if, if all this is true, if, if heaven and hell are real, and if Jesus really did actually die, but rise from the grave, and he's alive today, then us living with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world really is not an option. It's not an option at all. And so I'm gonna talk about today and answer this question, if that's true, which I am convinced in the core of my being that it is, that Jesus is alive, how does that change the here and the now? Now I'm gonna, Excuse me, I'm gonna to preach today from the assumption that the resurrection really happened, if that's okay with you. I'm, I'm not gonna spend any time talking about the historical evidence of the resurrection in which there is a lot. I read an article this week about uh, a retired cold case detective. That He's one of the best cold case detectives in American history. He solved stuff all the time, but he was not a believer. And after his career was over, he decided that he wanted to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And so he went on this journey using his skills to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And when he'd gather all the evidence, he became a Christian, right? I could talk about the change in the disciples before and after the resurrection. About how on the night of Jesus' arrest and the day of his death, the disciples were, disciples were nowhere to be found because they were scared to death. And yet after the resurrection, they were completely and radically different men. All of a sudden they're bold. All of a sudden they won't stop preaching about Jesus to the point that they all give up their lives because they refuse to recant the resurrection. I could talk about all the stories in my life that I simply cannot explain, that I have zero explanation for apart from the fact that Jesus is alive. And so really, um, for the sake of time today, we're gonna start from the assumption that the Apostle Paul was true, that if the resurrection never happened, then we are above all men the most to be pitied. But in fact, Jesus did rise from the grave, that he is alive. And how does that change the here and now? I'm, I have one primary point today. I'm gonna to do a couple of sub points, but I have one primary point, and it's this, if you're a note taker. It's pretty straightforward, that since Jesus is alive, we need to go all in and our devotion with Christ. That if Jesus is alive, 
And we need to go all in in our devotion to Christ. I think Isaac Watts, famous hymn writer, in his hymn, um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, I think he said it best. He said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. I think he's dead on with that. That if Jesus really did rise from the grave, then you and I need to go all in with Christ. Now, what do I mean when I say the phrase all in? Well, I'll tell you, it actually is a poker term. Uh, of the game of poker. And I know a lot of y'all grew up Southern Baptist and so y'all don't know what poker is and never played it. And so I will explain it to you. In the game of poker, um, you get different hands and they, you know, some are better than others. And I want you to imagine that you're playing poker one day and, and your hand is dealt to you and you look down at your cards and you realize you have drawn as your hand what's called a royal flush, which is the highest hand in poker. It would be like you having an ace, a king, a queen, a jack, and a ten, and all of them are spades. It's a royal flush. You just drew the highest possible hand in poker, and it's incredibly rare. It almost never happens. And as you sit there, it dawns on you that no matter what happens for the rest of the game, you are going to win. No matter what happens, there's, there's no doubt at all you are going to win, and because of that, when it comes time to place your bet, you do what's called going all in. Okay, I actually have a picture for you of what it looks like to go all in. This is the first time in stage my history there's been a picture of a poker table in the service, so enjoy it, maybe the last, but that's the idea. That when you realize you have the winning hand, no matter what happens, nobody's beating you, what you do is you shove all your chips to the middle of the table, and you go all in. You're betting the farm that you're going to win. And the only time you'd ever do it is when you know for a fact you're going to win. Now, here's my point. Sagemont, has it ever dawned on you that if Jesus actually rose from the grave, then no matter what happens between now and eternity, we are holding an unbeatable hand? <laughs> Seriously, if Jesus is alive, that he conquered death, then no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what happens in our country, we win. And so if Jesus is alive, what other option do we have but to push all of our chips to the middle of the table and say, Jesus, I'm going all in for you. And what's interesting, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, 45, if you have a Bible today, if you don't, we'll have them on the screen. Matthew 13, 25. Excuse me, what's interesting is that going all in for Jesus is something that Jesus has always called us to. Did you know that? That's something he's always called us to. Listen to Matthew 13, 45. This is Jesus speaking. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls and who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This was a picture of the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is trying to make the point that, look, when you realize just how valuable the kingdom of God is, when you find it, when you realize that the kingdom of God is more valuable than anything in the world, then you will give up anything that you have to in order 
to get the kingdom of God. Jesus always called us to go all in. You see it in the story of John 6. This is a fascinating story. Um, Jesus, during his ministry at this particular time in John 6, was the height of his popularity. There were thousands, literally thousands of people that were following him around, but the problem was that they were following him for all the wrong reasons. They were following him around because he was feeding them and because he was healing them. This was back in the day when they didn't have HEBs, and so you couldn't just walk in the door of HEB and just grab food and go home. If you wanted food, you had to grow it or kill it, and so food was hard to come by. And this was back in the day before hospitals or surgery or antibiotics, and so a lot of times if you got sick, you either got better on your own or you died. And then all of a sudden, this guy shows up one day named Jesus. He's from the little backwoods town of Nazareth, and he shows up, and lo and behold, he starts feeding people. He, he takes two fish and five loaves and through it somehow he feeds thousands of people. And then if that weren't crazy enough, he started healing people. He, there were people that were blind, but he heals them. And now you see there are people that were paralytics and now they, they can walk. And the word began to get out. There's a guy feeding people. There's a guy healing people. And so thousands of people began to follow him. And it was when Jesus was at the height of his popularity, thousands of people were following. He stops, turns around, looks at the crowd. And in John chapter six, verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And the crowd said, what did you just say? It's a very offensive term, actually. I don't have time to go into it. He was speaking metaphorically and his point was, you can't follow me for what I can do for you. If you're gonna follow me, you gotta go all in because of who I am. And I want you to watch what happened in John 6, 66. We see the response of the crowd. It says, and after this, most of his followers turned back and no longer walked with him. I think Jesus did that because he could see their hearts. He knew they were following him for all the wrong reasons. And so he looks at them and says, hey, unless you're willing to go all in, you don't need to follow me. There are even times in the scripture, interestingly, that people walk up to Jesus, they wanna follow him, and they even say to him, hey, I'm all in. And yet he won't let them follow him. Let's, let's check out Matthew eight nineteen. The scribe came up, and the scribe came up uh, and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And so this Jewish scribe walks up to Jesus and makes what would seem a public profession of faith. There's a crowd standing around. The scribe walks up to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. God actually calls him teacher. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now this is a big deal because, because of who scribes are. Scribes were experts in Jewish law. They wrote down the law, but here's the thing you know about scribes. By the time you became a scribe, you were not a follower, but you were a teacher. You were in charge. You taught other people, but did you notice what the scribe called Jesus? Matthew 8, 19, and the scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And so this expert in Jewish law walks up to a Jewish carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth and calls him teacher. That would have been the highest title of respect he could have given Jesus. Now watch what happens next. 
Verse 19, and the scribe came up to him and said, teacher. And then watch what he says. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds pretty all in to me. This guy's so impressed with Jesus that in front of God and everybody, he calls Jesus teacher and then he tells him, I'll go wherever it is that you go. Now, if that story ends right there, if that story ends right there, then I think that goes down as one of the greatest stories of redemption in the history of the Bible. If the, if the story just stops right there, if that scribe, hear this, if the scribe had actually left his wealth and his power and his position and begun to follow Jesus, that goes down as one of the greatest redemption stories in the Bible. I mean, I think that rakes right up there with Zacchaeus. And we start writing songs about this scribe and we teach Sunday school lessons about the scribe that left everything to follow Jesus, but that's not how the story ends. Matter of fact, let me ask you a question. In light of the fact, God calls him teacher, says, I'll follow you wherever you go. How would you expect Jesus to respond to that guy? I don't know about you, but I would expect Jesus, after he says that, to look at him and go, wow, former scribe dude, that's amazing. Hey, everybody in the crowd, did y'all catch what he just said? He calls me teacher. He said, he'll follow me wherever he goes. His faith is amazing. You know, a former scribe, dude, all those other scribes, they don't get it. All the Pharisees, they don't get it, but you get it. So absolutely, yes, you can follow me. That's what I expect Jesus to say, but that's not what Jesus says. Let me ask you another question. How would you and I have responded? I want you to imagine, this would be very similar to, say, a... Um, a Muslim imam, you know, a leader of the Islamic faith. What if they walked in one day here to Sagemont, came up to us and said, hey, I've been checking this Jesus guy out and I have decided that I wanna walk away from Islam and I wanna become a follower of Christ. If that happened at Sagemont, what would we do? I'm telling you what we'd do. We'd walk him right to the connection center. We'd pray the prayer of salvation with him. We'd baptize him. We'd put him in an iConnect class and we'd ask him to go serve in our parking lot ministry. That's exactly what we do. But that's not what Jesus did. I want you to watch Jesus' response. Matthew 8, 19. And the scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that's all Jesus said to him. Just completely ignores the guy's request. Says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And all Jesus does, doesn't even acknowledge it. He just says, hey, you have absolutely no idea how hard it's gonna be to follow me. And the fascinating thing is Jesus doesn't say another word to him. Just walks off. Didn't teach you that story in Sunday school growing up, did they? I think the only explanation, again, for why Jesus reacts that way is he must have seen into the guy's heart. Jesus must have seen that this guy, really at the end of the day, no matter what was coming out of his mouth, was not gonna be willing to walk away from his wealth or his power or his position to follow Jesus, and so he completely ignored his request. Jesus has always called us to go all in. One more. There's actually another guy that walks up immediately after the scribe and he too tells Jesus, I wanna follow you, but let's watch what he says. Another of the disciples, and that just means it was a loosely affiliated guy with Jesus, wasn't one of the 12. Where he says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And so right after the scribe, God walks up to Jesus, says, hey, I'm in, sign me up, I wanna follow you, but would you please let me go and bury my father first, and then I'll follow you. Now guys, I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty reasonable request to me. Don't you think? Like, Jesus, I'm in. I'm all in. But would you let me go bury my, my father first? But watch what Jesus says to him in Matthew 8, 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I remember reading that growing up and thinking, dang, Jesus, <laughs> that's intense. That's kind of harsh. I mean, all the guy wants to do is go bury his dead father for crying out loud, but you, what in the world? Well, as you study this and you look a little deeper into what's going on, you realize that there's more to that story than meets the eye. I found out actually that in ancient Middle Eastern culture, the phrase, let me go bury my father was actually a very common phrase that people used. It was a figure of speech to describe when a father was aging and you were going to take over his business. And so if somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, what are you up to these days? If your father was aging and you were about to take over his business, you would look at them and say, well, I'm about to go bury my father. Just means that you, you're gonna go take over your aging father's business. Now here's the tricky part, here's the interesting part, that the son would more often than not not receive his inheritance until he did it. Y'all see where this is going? So this guy wasn't in a situation where his father had actually died and he was simply asking Jesus to go bury his dad before he followed him. This guy was literally saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first I'm gonna go take over my dad's business. Let me get this thing going. Let me get my inheritance and then I'll follow you. And a lot of that Jesus' response makes a lot more sense. Listen, listen to me carefully here. Jesus was not telling this guy he couldn't bury his dead father. He was saying, you can follow me, but you have to want me more than your inheritance. You can follow me, but you have to want me more than you want the approval of your family. He's saying, you can follow me, but your relationship with me has to be the single most important relationship in your entire life. And church, Jesus makes this point. I could keep going. Jesus makes this point over and over and over again and over again in the scripture that following Jesus doesn't mean that you have to give up all your money and all your relationships with other people to follow him. But what it does mean is that you have to be willing to, that you have to be willing to surrender anything in your life to him, if he asks you. And so listen, guys, going all in, it was and it always has been Jesus' standard for following Christ. But somewhere along the way, over the last 2,000 years, somewhere along the way, over the last 2,000 years, you and I have lowered the standard, man. We've lowered the standard. The standard for following Jesus now is not going all in in our society. You can consider yourself a Christian, but your life really not look all that different than the world. I wanna show you what I'm talking about. I did some research this week. I looked at a ton of studies from Lifeway, from Barna, and from Gallup about modern 21st century Christianity. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show you four slides real quick. In the first part of the slide, I'm gonna just show you a scripture from Acts in the first century church. And then right underneath it, I'm gonna show you one of the statistics about the 21st century church. Here's slide number one. 
First century Christians, Acts 2.46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. That's day by day they attended the temple together. Here's 21st century Christians. Almost 70% of active church attenders say they only attend once or twice a month. Okay? Slide number two. First century Christians. Acts 2.47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. 21st century Christians. Over the last year, 79% of professing Christians didn't share their faith once or more than once. Slide number three, first century Christians. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. 21st century Christians. Last year, 80% of active church attenders didn't give a dime to the ministry of their local church. Last one, first century Christians. Acts 5.40, this is talking about John and Peter and what happened to them when they wouldn't stop preaching about the resurrection. In verse 40, it says, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 21st century Christians, 57% of professing believers agree with this statement. I don't want to appear overly religious to my non-professing coworkers. Y'all getting the point? Somewhere along the way, in the last 2,000 years, we went from a people that worshiped every day, daily shared our faith, gave everything so that the kingdom of God would be advanced and were willing to get the crud beat out of us or even lay down our lives so that people could hear about Jesus to now where the majority of Christians maybe attend church twice a month. We rarely, if ever, share our faith. We don't give a dime to the kingdom and we're scared to death that people even know we're Christians. So here's the question, why has it changed so much? Why has it changed? I mean, because Jesus hadn't changed, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And make no mistake, his calling has not changed. Go read the book. His calling has always been to go all in. So Sagemont, I'm thinking that the only thing that's changed are Christians' willingness to live out the biblical picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ, which is not to have one foot in the kingdom and one in the world, but to go all in for Jesus. That's the calling. So the rest of the sermon, I'm gonna answer this question. Or rather, I'm gonna ask this question. If Jesus is real, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, if heaven and hell are real, Jesus is alive, what's keeping you from going on? What's keeping you? What's keeping me? Pushing all our chips to the middle of the table and saying, Jesus, I'm not gonna allow you just to be a part of my life, but Lord, I'm I'm giving you my life. What's keeping us from doing that? Well, in my 27 years of ministry, I've seen there's two primary reasons that people struggle with going all in. 
I'm gonna give you those two and I'll be done. Here's the first reason that I've seen in my ministry that people struggle with going all in for Jesus. Number one is when people realize the cost of what it means to completely follow Jesus, they aren't willing to pay the cost. When people realize the cost of what it means to completely follow Jesus, they aren't willing to pay the cost. And you see Jesus call us to, to count the cost in Luke 14, 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 28, he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. And so Jesus is saying here that first and foremost, following him means you die to yourself. And secondarily, you gotta sit down and you gotta look at the cost of what it, what it's gonna mean to follow Jesus and then you decide whether or not you're willing to pay that cost. And there's a lot of people I've seen in my ministry that they, when they actually realize the cost of what it means to follow Christ, then they're like, I'm, I'm not sure I want any of that. And they walk away. Listen to this quote by theologian R.C.H. Linksy. He says, a man might see the soldiers on parade, the fine uniforms and the glittering arms and is eager to join, forgetting the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, death and the unmarked graves. In other words, people love the idea of being a soldier until the bullets start flying. And then they have a change of heart. I, um, I saw this in a much more minor level in my years in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M. Um, my sophomore, junior, and senior year, when I actually made it through the gauntlet of being a freshman, we had this um, job of recruiting people, and so we would... Um, recruit these young men that were going into A&M and had been accepted A&M and, and they were vaguely interested in the Corps. And, and, and so they would show up and they'd check the Corps out and they'd see the seniors with their cool leather boots and their sabers and, you know, that these seniors had these amazing uniforms and a good-looking girlfriend and they'd think, I want to do that. And so they walk into the commandant office and they say, I want to be in the Corps of Cadets. And then about four or five days in their first week in the Corps, they have an epiphany. It's about five o'clock in the morning. They're tired. It hits them that their head is shaved. And there's a mean guy yelling at them. And they're about to go on a six-mile run. And they're gonna, he's going to have to get up in the morning and do the same thing. And then they get back from the run. He's even more exhausted. The guy's still yelling. And one of their buddies really messed up. One of his freshman buddies really messed up. And so the mean guy yelling at him looks at him and says, hey, you've lost all your weekend privileges. So Friday and Saturday night, you're gonna have to stay and, and clean the latrine with a toothbrush. And then all of a sudden they have a change of heart. It all looked good until they realized the sacrifice. It all looked great until they realized what it was gonna cost them. And then they, they march back in the, in the commandant's office and they walk away, they quit. I've seen that. Gosh, guys, I've seen that played out, that same scenario played out in the church really more times than I can count, dozens. People that love the idea of Jesus, they hear that Jesus loves them, which he does. And they're like, man, that's awesome. That's amazing. God of the universe loves me. That's, that's great. They hear that following Christ 
They can have abundant life. And they, they're like, I can have abundant life, follow Jesus? Sweet, sign me up. And wait, wait a minute, I get to go to heaven forever when I die? That's amazing. I want to be a Christian. But then it hits them that following Jesus, while he does love you and why he is going to give you abundant life and why you do get to go to heaven when you die, that following him also means a lot of sacrifice. That following him sometimes means suffering, and the following him sometimes means you gotta walk away from things that you want, but he doesn't want. And after they actually count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, they realize they're really actually not willing to pay that cost. They say, I didn't sign up for this, and they walk away. Jesus said, you gotta count the cost. Here's the second thing. Second reason I've seen people not be willing to just go all in with the Lord, and this is a very simple one too, is that Jesus is not their greatest treasure. Jesus is not their greatest treasure. I've been thinking about this. And you know how we say a lot, like when, some, when someone wants to become a Christian, we tell them that they need to trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Y'all heard us say that? Trust in Christ, your Lord and Savior. Guys, after I have read this book, after I've read the New Testament, after I've read the words of Jesus over and over again, I am utterly convinced that we need to change that, not from accepting Christ into your, as your Lord and Savior, but that we need to accept Christ as our Lord, our Savior, and our greatest treasure. I'm convinced. We ought to add that. And here's why. I checked out this um, Check out Luke 14, This is one of the hardest verses in the whole Bible. This is one of the most pointed, intense things Jesus ever said. Luke 14, So therefore, if any one of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. They didn't teach that one to you growing up in Sunday school, did they either? This is Jesus speaking, this is not me, it's not Paul, this is Jesus. He said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You're like, wait a minute, Jesus, that's pretty intense. Yeah, it is intense. It actually, we hear renounce, we think that speaks against something, that's not what it means when you look at the Greek. Renounce means to let go of it. it means to surrender. It means to say goodbye to it. And so what Jesus is, everybody look at me, what Jesus is literally saying, if there's anything in your life that you're not willing to let go of in order to follow him, you cannot be his disciple. And so what he is literally teaching us is that if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you want to be a Christian, then Jesus has to be your greatest treasure. Got to be your greatest treasure. And so why does he want that? Like, why? That seems pretty intense. Why does he want to be our greatest treasure to the point he won't let us follow him if he's not? And here's the answer. You may have never thought about this before, but there is on all of our hearts, every single one of us, we have a little throne that sits on our heart. All of us do. A little throne that sits on our heart. You've got it, I've got it right now. And what sits on the throne of your heart is the person or the thing that you love the most. 
the person or the thing that you desire the most, that you love the most right now, that is sitting on the throne of your heart. And that thing that's sitting on the throne of your heart that you love the most and desire the most, that is your greatest treasure. Everybody check this out. And so what Jesus is saying to you and to me through this is he's saying, hey, that little throne that sits on top of your heart, Jesus is saying, that's my seat. That's my seat. And I'm not okay with anybody or anything sitting in my seat. And we hear that and we're like, man, that's kind of intense. That's kind of demanding. And and, and the answer is yes, Jesus not wanting to share his seat with anybody or anything is demanding. And it's also the greatest news you're ever gonna hear in your entire life. Because you know what it means? It means that he loves you more than your wildest imagination. That's what that means. Is it demanding? Yes. Is it intense? Yes. But it's Jesus saying, I want to be your greatest treasure. It's the greatest news you can ever hear. I'm going to tell you why. Y'all ever heard the term that God is jealous for us? And I remember growing up and I would hear that, that God is a jealous God. And it always sat weird with me because my understanding of jealousy is that it's always kind of a creepy thing. Girls, you know that guy you dated in college that was creepy and he was super jealous and she had to kick him to the curb because it was really dysfunctional. There is a sinful negative aspect of jealousy, but there's also a really, really good aspect of jealousy that we want in the hearts and lives of the people that we love. Let me give you an example. What, is the ch- uh, what does the Bible call us? Calls us the church, right? We're, church not a building, it's people. And what does the scripture call the church? One of the names for church is the bride of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. We are his bride and he is our bridegroom. And so husbands, let me, let me, husbands, let me let this sink into your heart for a second. I wanna ask you a question, husbands, with the exception of Jesus, do you want your bride to give you the highest place in her heart? With the exception of Jesus, do you want your wife to give you the highest place in her heart? I hope you do. I mean, think about it. Would, husbands, would you, be with, would you be okay with your wife saying, darling, I love you, and I want to be married to you, but there's this other guy I love just a little bit more. <laughs> would you be okay with that? I personally wouldn't. That's a healthy jealousy. That's me saying, look, Jennifer, with the exception of Jesus, I want, I want to be the the highest man in your life other than the greatest man. Women, wives, how would you feel if your husband came to you and said, hey, um, I love you. I love you. I want to stay married with you, but I am totally okay with you loving another man more than me. Would you feel loved? Would you feel cherished? Would you feel valued? No, you'd feel cheapened. That thing you're feeling inside of you is a very healthy jealousy. Everybody look at me. I am almost done. Listen, why does Jesus 
demand that we give him the highest place in our hearts? And the answer is because we are his bride. We're his bride. And he loves us way too much to be okay with us placing anything in our hearts above him. He's calling you to be, calling you to place him as your greatest treasure and that's the greatest news we're ever gonna hear because it shows us just how much he loves us. I'll end with this. I, I had something happen to me two days ago. I was at a golf tournament with some men and um, I ended up meeting this guy that was, sorry for two court illustrations in one Sunday, but I actually met one of the guys I was in the court with when I was a sophomore. He was a, a, a freshman and here's the thing that you need to know about this guy is back in the day, he made it all the way through. And back in the day, um, this young guy was a pagan. Let me just put it that way. He's a pagan. He, um, he partied all the time. Um, he chased girls. He had a foul mouth. He was mean. He was one of the best sophomores we ever had in the history of the court. That dude was mean. And, and guys, I'm gonna tell you something. I saw him yesterday. We ha I have not seen his face since what's called Final Review, my senior year. It's the last time you marched as a senior. I hadn't seen his face since Final Review in 1996. And I'm telling you, when I saw him yesterday, he was a completely different human being. There was a joy about him. There was a peace about him. There was a, a kindness in his eyes and in his tone that was palpable. And I said, man, I, I said, hey, um, man, what, what, what's going on with you, bro? I hadn't seen you since 96. You, you look different to me. He said, man, I'll tell you what, I, I, gave my, I gave my life to Jesus. I said, really? I said, man, that's amazing. I went, he said, about six, seven years ago is when it happened. And, and, um, and I asked him, I cut him off. I said, man, what happened? Like, how did that happen? Because you used to be a crazy person and, and you're different, man. I can tell by looking at you. Like, what in the world happened? And, and he laughed and he paused for a second. I kid you not, he, like tears started welling up in his eyes. Here's this grown man starting to get gray on his beard. He's this high-ranking guy in his company, former Corps cadet guy, and his lip started quivering. And he said, Matt, I went to church because my wife made me. I went to church because... That's just what you do. He said, Jesus was a part of my life, but he was not anywhere near the center of my life. And he said, it all changed. A buddy of his invited him to go on a retreat. And this guy was preaching. And the guy said this line. He said, some of you have been going to church a long time and Jesus is a part of your life, but Jesus is not the center of your life. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Come, make me the center of your life and that's when I'll change your life and he said Matt I knew in that moment that was me he said I went home I could not sleep and as I laid there I prayed this prayer and this is what he said I wrote it down on my phone after I walked away because I wanted to tell it to you this is what he prayed that night he said Jesus if you'll have me I want you to be my everything if you'll have me I want you to be my everything and he said Matt it radically radically changed me and it was the greatest decision I ever made 
Church, I want to remind you today. He is risen. He is alive. And he's everything he says he is. He's everything he says he is. And if he's alive, and if he's everything he says he is, which I am convinced he is, if there's anything in your life that's standing in the way of you going all in. I, I don't care if it's an addiction. I don't care if it's a sin. I don't care if it's pride. I don't care if it's a relationship. If there's anything in the way of you going all in, I want you to look to the cross today. Look to the cross today. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the face of the one who's saying, I want to be your greatest treasure. Why? Because you are my greatest treasure. And when you do, then the words of that song will stop just being words that you sing, but they'll be words that you believe, and they will be words that change your life. And these are the words, were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, and my all.